0: You have received a magnificent invitation written in golden ink. You're invited to relax to this chapter by chapter calm summary of the Lord of the Rings. You can listen, ignore, or a little of both. For the next few minutes, the only thing you have to worry about is chapter eleven of the Fellowship of the Ring. You eat a good breakfast with friends, saddle up your pony. Grab your trusty bag of apples, and you're off, towards a darker but more exciting adventure. Throughout the last episode, Strider patiently convinces the hobbits that he is trustworthy. A letter turns up that Butterbur forgot to send three months ago that corroborates his story by proving that he is a friend of Gandalf, and that his true name is Aragorn. The mystery of the missing Gandalf deepens, and some unintentional spying by Merry makes it clear that there are at least two black riders in Bree. They realize the riders, thanks to some shady collaborators, probably know exactly where the ring and the ring bearer are at that exact moment. The night ends with Frodo accepting Strider's suggestion to move rooms for the night, and we can take a breath and realize that, if nothing else, the hobbits are finally in competent hands. Chapter 11 opens up the morning after this tense night. Strider and the hobbits are planning to wake up early and make a run for it. Today's chapter covers a lot of ground, both story-wise and geographically, so it will probably go a little longer today. Being hunted by black riders, you can expect it to get pretty dark, too. So, heads up. But of course, this is one of the most exciting chapters so far. So, let's gather around the fire and go through the coolest named chapter yet. Chapter 11 of Book 1, A Knife in the Dark. When we left the last chapter, the hobbits were falling into an uneasy sleep expecting imminent danger. Chapter 11 opens up with an attack, but it's not the one we're expecting. For just two pages, we're back in the Shire at Frodo's new house in Crick Hollow. It's the early morning hours of September 30th, just four days after Frodo, Sam, Merry, and Pippin departed to the Old Forest. So far, Fatty Bulger's ruse had been going fairly well. For the past few days, he'd been making sure the home looked well-occupied. I like to imagine him pottering around the grown-over garden in Frodo's clothes, making a show of checking the mail, cooking himself lunch, and then lighting a small fire for reading at night. It's actually been a pretty nice job so far, and Fatty can't help but congratulate himself for escaping both the old forest and the hectic home life with his annoying sister, Estella. Who, by the way, will eventually get married to Mary Brandybuck. It was all going well until the fourth day. Throughout the afternoon, a niggling feeling at the back of his brain grew into a sense of anxiety he couldn't quite place his finger on and by the time he put his feet up next to the fire that evening, he couldn't deny that, for some reason, he was downright afraid of something. Sleep was not an option, so when we find him in the early morning hours, he's standing on the threshold of an open door, staring out into the darkness of a pre-dawn Buckland, holding a cup of tea. It's dark, chilly, and damp. Was that a shadow moving over there, under the tree near the lane? He rubs his eyes. When the gate appears to open and close on its own, he freezes, but quickly shuts and locks the door. In the last chapter, Strider told us that the Black Rider's power is in terror, dark, and loneliness, and that they will not openly attack a house where there are lights and many people. And now we find our homebody, Fatty Bulger, alone in a dark cottage a mile from the closest house. We see three dark shapes move down the lane and take up positions, two at the corners of the house and one at the front door. It's a tactic that will allow them, when the time is right, to overwhelm by force and cut off escape. They stand motionless for a long time. But then. Quote, the figure by the door moved. In the dark, without moon or stars, a drawn blade gleamed as if a chill light had been unsheathed. There was a blow, soft but heavy, and the door shuddered. Open, in the name of Mordor, said a voice, thin and menacing. At a second blow the door yielded and fell back with timbers burst and lock broken the black figures passed swiftly in At that moment among the trees nearby a horn rang out Like Marion Bree Fatty's made one final burst of bravery before he's overcome by fear As we watched the shapes waiting to attack he slipped out the back door and sprinted the mile to the next house the hobbits inside were awakened to a collapsed boulder on their doorstep spluttering out something about enemies in a shire. Thank Ilubitar this isn't Hobbiton because the Bucklanders waste no time in raising the alarm. All of a sudden the Black Riders are confronted by lights and people. But it doesn't matter. They now know that the Ringbearer has escaped and they waste no time galloping off eastward toward our heroes. It's a thrilling opening, and from it we learn a few things. First, there are now five confirmed black riders, two in Bree, three in the Shire, and though their list of terrifying abilities grows with every chapter, we now know that telepathic communication is not one of them. We know this because the two wraiths and Bree detect the ring and its bearer on the evening of September 29th. But the other three wait around until the following morning to attack the decoy house in Crickhollow. And finally, on a happier note, we're beginning to learn about the courage hidden in the average hobbit. Our only knowledge of Fatty is framed by his refusal to go on the adventure, citing the rumors surrounding the Old Forest. Mr. Bolger is our avatar for the average hobbit, the majority who think boating is for daredevils only. But when push comes to shove, even he is able to find his courage and do what needs to be done. The hobbits will need to call on this hidden bravery during the occupation of the Shire, which, believe it or not, will actually begin picking up speed not too long after this episode. As dawn approaches in Bree, sounds from the attack on Crick Hollow creep into Frodo's dreams. It's not a full prophetic dream, but it tells us that he's still subconsciously attuned to what I'm coming to suspect is a Middle-earth version of ESP. Groggy from the previous night's excitement, he opens his eyes to see Strider pulling back the curtains, letting in the cold air in the first light of the morning. He wakes up the other three and leads them to their quarters from the night before. It's a scary sight. The little round windows have been forced from the outside and the four hobbit decoys that Nob tucked into the bed have been slashed and thrown to the floor. Now if you've seen the movies you're probably picturing the scene where the black riders break into the hobbit's room and slash the beds at night. It's a great way to show how scary and evil they are, but there's actually plenty of evidence that they weren't the ones responsible. In the last chapter, Strider states pretty plainly that the writers won't openly attack a place with so many lights and people, like we've talked about before. He also goes on to hint that the same can't be said for the people they've employed. Then there's the crime scene itself it's clear that the perpetrators stayed within the Hobbit's room. What are the chances that a black rider who's made his way into the wrong room could not simply sniff out the ring as we've seen them do before? And then there's the slashing of the Hobbit decoys. We've seen the wraiths in Crick Hollow act with extreme patience and planning, and as we'll see later, little interest in actually killing the ring bearer. I think that this vandalism seems much more human, perhaps the violent outburst of someone who just realized that a lucrative bounty had slipped through their fingers. And by the way, it's the three men from the last chapter who can visually identify Frodo, not the writers. So while we'll never know for sure, the evidence points strongly toward Harry, Bill, and the Southerner being sent on a mission to incapacitate Frodo and bring them back to the waiting riders. A mental image I find way more terrifying than two towering wraiths in cloaks and swords trying to stealth crawl their way through a hobbit window in order to get the drop on Frodo. Butterbur is horrified by this turn of events and it gets worse. Soon they discover that sometime in the night, someone drove off the five hobbit ponies along with every other animal in the stable. It's the hobbit's turn to be horrified, but Strider steps in to lift their spirits and make a plan. Ponies, he declares, will be no use in the wilderness anyway. They'll just need to find a new way to carry food and supplies. Sizing the hobbits up, he asks if they're willing to carry extra in their packs. Their answers are a pretty good indication of how their personalities have grown since that first carefree hobbit walking party to Crick Hollow. Pippin reluctantly agrees, trying to be tougher than he feels. It's possible he's feeling a bit self-conscious compared to his more serious friends, especially as we saw in the last chapter. Sam says he can carry enough for two, He's stalwart if not entirely logical. Frodo responds with more questions and doubts. He's our leader, but still indecisive in the face of hardship. Merry, a budding planner and hobbit through and through, realizes they can have breakfast while they wait for Butterbird to find a pony. And so they find a small table out of the way and eat a good breakfast together. So everyone's anxious, I like to think that they try and enjoy it as much as possible. After all, there's nothing they can do at the moment, and it's one of their few prepared meals eaten indoors for some time. Picture Strider and the hobbits digging into a huge pile of eggs as they begin to get to know each other. Maybe they're astonished at how quickly he eats from a life on the run and maybe he's gobsmacked at the sheer amount that the hobbits can put away. Either way, it's enough to resolve any leftover awkwardness from the previous night. So they've double-checked their packs, helped clean up the trashed hobbit quarters, and are chatting in a small room overlooking the inn yard when they finally see Bob come back to the prancing pony. His news is grim. The only horse or pony available in Bree belongs to none other than Bill Ferny, the one we know is working for the Black Riders. The poor animal is old, half-starved, and being sold for triple its worth. Frodo suspects some sort of trap, but Strider tells the group it's probably just Fernie rubbing salt in the wound. Butterbur pays Fernie for the pony, and he even offers the hobbits more money for their lost ponies. It looks like he's on the hook for the horses that belong to the group of Southerners until it's discovered that one of their group has disappeared in the night. It's clear that this is the shady character described as the squint-eyed Southerner. Butterbur seems to avoid paying damages by accusing them of associating with a horse thief even if they can't remember when he joined their party. It's an interesting window into how Middle-earthers view liability. Both Frodo's party and the group of Southerners have some degree of culpability in the loss of the stable animals. Frodo for neglectfully drawing the attentions and actions of bad actors, and the Southerners for bringing the suspect to the scene in the first place, even if they didn't know that that's what they were doing but it's Frodo who gets restitution for the lost ponies. And it seems like a pretty straightforward decision because the Southerners immediately subside when this all comes to light. But there's no need to call in a Brelander lawyer, if those even exist. In a rare look into the future, we learn that it's all happily resolved when most of the animals that have bolted in the night eventually come wandering back. Frodo's ponies wander all the way back to Tom Bombadil, who amazingly catches wind of the whole episode and sends them back to Butterbur. Again, so many questions surrounding Bombadil, even just from this one tiny reference. How on earth did he hear, especially when we know that Bree is outside the bounds of his realm? And if he can't be bothered to care about things outside of those borders, why does he care about Barlam and Butterbur taking a loss of some silver pennies? Apparently, no matter how far behind we leave Tom Bombadil, will never truly escape the mysteries around him. So after all the horse logistics, packing and repacking, the little band sets off at 10 o'clock, more than three hours delay. Strider's fear of losing their secret start is realized fully and hilariously. Most of the villagers of not just Bree but the surrounding three villages show up to see the mysterious hobbits and Strider the ranger set off. There are people hanging out of windows and children following them. It's a true spectacle. Strider, with a pretty good understanding of the area and its inhabitants, decides to leave by the road, and not start cutting cross-country until the villagers have gotten tired of following them. So finally, after much delay, our six heroes say goodbye to the inn and leave town. You heard me, six. That's four hobbits, Aragorn, and the quote, bony, underfed, and dispirited pony, Sam's named after its old owner, the evil Bill Ferny. As they all trudge out of Bree, carrying more than is comfortable, Sam notices that Bill the Pony has a little more pep in his step, as if he's already approved of his new life. I'm just gonna say right here that if you don't love Bill the Pony, we can't be friends. So they've left the gate to Bree, turned on the east road, and are passing the last house on the road, the one Mary followed the Wraith to last night, when Frodo spots the Southerner in one of the windows. And guess whose house it is? Bill Fernie. I know. Shocking. By the way, the Southerner is described as having a sallow face with sly, slanting eyes. (sighs) Yikes. Once again, we have a bad guy being described first and foremost by his stereotypically non-white features. We talked about this a little in the last episode, so for now I'll just point out the obvious fact that this is problematic and point you toward the supplemental episode on racism in Middle-earth that I'm planning to throw up after episode 12. Okay, back to it. We are walking past Bill Fernie's dilapidated house and he pops up over the edge and starts to heckle the little group. He calls Aragorn, stick it not, Strider. Which to me sounds like more of a compliment for an even tempered person. Anyway, Fernie trash talks himself into a pretty great exchange with Sam, who is becoming more likable once again by the minute. Quote, watch out tonight, and you, Sammy, don't go ill treating my poor old pony. Ha he spat again. Sam turned quickly. And you, Fernie, he said. Put your ugly face out of sight, or it will get hurt. With a sudden flick, quick as lightning, an apple left his hand and hit Bill square on the nose. He ducked too late, and curses came from behind the hedge. Waste of a good apple, said Sam regretfully, and strode on. From here, time begins to speed up, and we begin to get beautiful descriptions of the country they're passing through. Strider explains that his plan is to shake off pursuit in the woods, then pass through the nearly empty lands on their way to a landmark called Weathertop Hill. Immediately, we're thankful that the hobbits have taken up with Strider. He's confident in the woods and the hobbits are beginning to enjoy the walk right about the time they would have become hopelessly lost if they were left alone. The plan seems to work. On the third day out from the Prancing Pony, they leave the forest for an almost disorientingly wide-open territory. Still, Strider knows where he's going, and he breaks the news to the hobbits that they'll have to take a shortcut through the mosquito-filled swamp called the Midgewater Marshes. They endure the boggy terrain and bug bites valiantly, and on the second night they make camp, nearly out of the insect's range. At this point, they've covered about the same amount of miles from Bree to here as they have from the Shire to Bree, only the second leg has been all on foot, no ponies. At the end of a long day of October 3rd, Frodo finally lays down by the small campfire. He's exhausted, but sleep refuses to come. As he stares into the night sky, he suddenly realizes that there's a strange light flashing off towards the east. Strider sees it too, but doesn't know what it could be. It is like lightning that leaps up from the hilltops, he says. Once again, Strider keeps watch through the night. His sleeplessness is understandable. Here he is, chaperoning a hapless group of hobbits through the wilderness. They're being hunted by the Black Riders, and only he understands what they truly are. His friend Gandalf is missing, food is short, and he is two weeks, at least, out from the safety of Rivendell. And now, there are strange lights appearing in the direction they'll be heading the next day. And speaking of the next day, he's not entirely sure that this plan to head for Weathertop is a good idea. As he looks out toward the flashes, Aragorn is probably thinking that there's a chance that everything he's fighting for will meet its end out here in the wilderness, soon. When the sun rises on the next day, the little band makes a small breakfast and sets out. They've gone just a few miles when a huge hill raises into view on the horizon ahead. It's striking against the smaller hills behind and the rolling grassland below. Its sides angle up steeply and there's a flattened top for travelers to look out from. This is Weathertop and Strider tells the hobbits that his plan is to make for the hill in hopes of finding Gandalf and surveying the country to plot their next steps. But there's danger too. The riders are likely to make for the hill themselves, and he suspects that there are birds or other animals spying for the enemy that might spot them up there more easily. Disturbingly, Strider doesn't seem quite sure of his plan now that Weathertop is in sight. They decide to make for a less open path toward the hill to mask their approach. The hobbits feel uneasy, and even the empty landscape is depressing. Here's the passage from the book. The land became drier and more barren, but mists and vapors lay behind them on the marshes. A few melancholy birds were piping and wailing until the round red sun sank slowly into the western shadows, Then an empty silence fell. The hobbits thought of the soft light of sunset glancing through the cheerful windows of Bag End far away. At the day's end, they came to a stream that wandered down from the hills to lose itself in the stagnant marshland, and they went up along its banks while light lasted. It was already night when at last they halted and made their camp under some stunted alder trees by the shores of the stream. Ahead there loomed now, against the dusky sky, the bleak and treeless backs of the hills. That night they set a watch, and Strider, it seemed, did not sleep at all. The next day, they draw nearer to Weathertop, and the hobbits begin to make out ruins of old walls and buildings on the ridge. It has to be a surreal moment. These grown-over ruins are a window back into a greater, more technologically advanced time. For Aragorn, there's a bit of family history. It's the place where an ancestor was killed when the Witch King's forces burned and destroyed it. It's an ominous fact considering the present situation. On October 6th, the group finds an ancient path that was created to secretly run supplies to the long-destroyed forts. Following it, they learn a little bit more about Weathertop from Strider. If they're taken aback by this ranger's knowledge of local history, it's nothing compared to when Sam steps up with some answers of his own. For the Hobbit with the least social stature in the party, this has to feel pretty good for him. It's along this little part of the journey that we learn something else about Strider. He's superstitious. When Frodo jokes that he's losing enough weight to end up a wraith, Aragorn unexpectedly jumps in to tell Frodo not to say such things aloud. It's equally awkward when he does the same thing to Pippin for saying the word Mordor. It's as if he's afraid that naming evil will somehow draw it. As they near Weathertop and his nerves are increasingly frayed, his cool and collected persona is beginning to slip a little. If the hobbits notice this, they are mostly keeping it to themselves. Finally at noon, they make their way to the pinnacle of Weathertop. Here's what they see. Quote, On the top they found, as Strider had said, a wide ring of ancient stonework, now crumbling or covered with age-long grass. But in the center, a cairn of broken stones had been piled. They were blackened as if with fire. About them the turf was burned to the roots, and all within the ring the grass was scorched and shriveled as if flames had swept the hilltop, but there was no sign of any living thing. It's another clue. Aragorn inspects the topmost stone on the cairn and finds one with scratches that appear to be the runes for G3. Though he can't be sure, Strider interprets the symbols to mean that Gandalf was here on October the 3rd and that he was in a great hurry. It's beginning to fall into place. October 3rd was the same night they saw the mysterious flashes. It conjures up an image of Gandalf creating great waves of fire to fend off attackers. Were they black riders? Did he survive? Where is he now? As they ponder all this, the group looks around. It's a bleak vista, and Strider tells them they're at least 12 days out from Rivendell. Frodo does not take this news very well. From the book, They stood for a while on the hilltop near its southward edge. In that lonely place, Frodo, for the first time, fully realized his homelessness and danger. He wished bitterly that his fortune had left him in the quiet and beloved Shire. He stared down at the hateful road leading back westward to his home. Suddenly, he was aware that two black specks were moving slowly along it growing westward, and looking again, he saw that three others were creeping eastward to meet them. Oh, crap. It's all built up to this moment. The creeping fear, the attacks, the vulnerable position. We know exactly who those specks are, and we're hit with the same panic that Frodo, Merry, and Aragorn feel. They GTFO as quickly as possible and meet up with Sam and Pippin near the base of Weathertop. These two have found a little dell to camp in. By the way, a dell is a small hollow in the land surrounded by trees. Anyway, there are signs of a recent encampment and footprints in the grass of many people in heavy boots. Were they rangers or ring wraiths? The hobbits want to leave immediately, understandably, but Strider tells them there's nowhere they can reach before nightfall that will provide more protection than this little dell. They have to stay and see the night through. Mary, somewhat belatedly, asks the resident expert about whether the black riders can see them. Strider's response must be horrifying. Remember that at this point, all the hobbits know is that they're creepy sounding big people that inspire fear and track hobbits by scent and spies. As the sun sets and their enemies draw near, Aragorn drops this bomb. Quote They themselves do not see the world of light as we do, but our shapes cast shadows in their minds, which only the noon sun destroys. And in the dark they perceive many signs and forms that are hidden from us. Then they are the most to be feared. And at all times they smell the blood of living things, desiring and hating it. Senses too there are other than sight or smell. We can feel their presence. It troubled our hearts as soon as we came here and before we saw them. They feel ours more keenly also he added and his voice sank to a whisper the ring draws them seeing in the dark check desiring living blood check their mere presence feeling wrong in the living world check thank you for the information strider frodo predictably panics But our new font of information has another nugget, that the riders are afraid of fire. Strider tells the little group to make a bonfire, ignoring Sam when he points out that it will only draw them nearer. They have some food and as the freezing darkness falls, Strider begins to tell them stories to keep up their spirits. He even recites some poetry from a song about the star-crossed lovers from the first age, Luthien and Beren. Their love story is mirrored by Aragorn and Arwen's, and as a matter of fact, he was singing this song 66 years earlier when he met Arwen for the first time. It's a little sad. With the mission already in huge jeopardy and his life in real danger, his thoughts are turning to the woman he loves. but it's insight for us and not the hobbits. He finishes the poem with a little more history, connecting Luthien to Elrond, the very important elf and leader of the refuge they're making for, Rivendell. He even connects back to Eärendil and the Kings of Numenor, his predecessor. If you're interested, I'm planning on releasing a sode of Aragorn backstory after chapter 12. Hopefully, I will have figured out better pronunciations by then. I have to say, I never really bothered with any of this until recently. But knowing the backstory makes moments like these so much more poignant and Aragorn so much more relatable. After his monologue, Strider understandably falls silent in thought, but at that moment, Mary sees a dark spot outside the dell. He and Sam walk a ways away from the fire to investigate, but quickly run back with reports of something creeping up the slope. Just like at Crick Hollow, at the beginning of this chapter, the wraiths are taking up tactical positions to cut off escape. Strider and the hobbits put their backs to the fire and strain their eyes into the darkness. Soon they can clearly see three or four figures above them on the slope looking down at them. They're described as black holes in the deep shade behind them. A tangible fear emanates from them like breath. Then they advance. The attack is quick. Mary and Pippin throw themselves to the ground in terror, and loyal Sam shrinks to Frodo's side. Whether to protect or be protected, we aren't sure. They're all frozen by fear, and Frodo is overcome by the irresistible desire to put on the ring. Only this time, he's not strong enough and he complies. Instead of escaping, he suddenly sees the ring race in. And- Terrible detail. In a last desperate and idiotic stand, he pulls out the sword from the barrow. Two wraiths pause, and his ring sight shows that his blade is flickering like a flame. But a third, taller than the rest and wearing a crown, sees this and moves towards Frodo. Frodo strikes at the figure's feet and surprises even himself by yelling out some elvish phrase Quote, a shrill cry rang out in the night and he felt a pain like a dart of poisoned ice pierce his left shoulder even as he swooned he caught as through a swirling mist a glimpse of strider leaping out of the darkness with a flaming brand of wood in either hand with a last effort frodo dropping his sword slipped the ring from his finger and closed his right hand tight upon it. And that is the thrilling cliffhanger end to chapter 11. In the next chapter, we'll have the maybe even more thrilling sprint to the finish line of Rivendell. It'll also be the last chapter of book one. So just as a quick reminder that I'll be taking a break after book one, but before book two comes out, I'll be releasing some of those mini-sos I've been talking about with extra supplemental information and a review of the story so far. So thank you guys all so much for listening today. I'll see you next time.